Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and my guest today is Ruth Rogers, the founder of The River Cafe. The River Cafe is perhaps London's last true power restaurant and a bastion of brilliant Italian cooking down by the Thames. But the only thing harder than getting a reservation here, perhaps, is getting a seat on Ruth's new podcast, Table 4. The brilliant new interview show, helmed by Rogers herself, who knows, and I'm sure this is no exaggeration, literally everybody, uses food as the jumping off point for a series of candid, strikingly honest conversations with the likes of Sir Paul McCartney, Bob Iger, David Beckham and Pete Davidson. In a highly enjoyable episode of our own humble podcast, we were lucky enough to sit down with Ruth for half an hour or so just before lunch service down at the River Cafe. Here, as the knives are sharpened, the onions cut and the sea bass filleted, Ruth tells us how the restaurant came about originally almost by chance, her first memories of coming to England, what her ultimate comfort food would be, and why you should always have a meal with somebody before you hire them. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal Shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. Ruth, thanks so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Of course, you are now a podcast veteran yourself. A uh, veteran? I'm not <laughs> sure. I think I'm... Um, I always say that in one hand, I said to the producers that I thought I was pushed into a swimming pool without knowing how to swim. Yeah. But I've learned and, you know, I've been very lucky because the people that I've interviewed are all people that the criteria really was that they knew the restaurant, they knew me a bit, and um, they cooked from my cookbooks. Of and course. so that made that premise. And then all we do is talk about food. There's yeah. one subject. How did you find the act of interviewing people? How did you go about it? Did you do a lot of research or did you let your kind of relationship do the work, so to speak? Well, part, both. Yeah. I think you have to prepare. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, there are some skills that you learn. You yeah. learn not to talk over the other person because then if you want to take uh, <laughs> your voice away, they can't because there are two voices. You learn that um, you need to know your questions because otherwise, uh, as Kirsty Young does Desert Island Discs, as a friend said, if you don't know your questions, then when the person is talking, you're thinking about your next question. Yeah. And that's a distraction. Um, but I'm, you know, the people that I spoke to were really uh, generous with their time. They were informed. They were enthusiastic, patient, and they were professionals. You know, most of them are for this series: um, actors, uh, writers, directors, uh, politicians, and athletes. And so they're used to probably speaking, yeah. which made it easier. But it's got a different tone to a lot of the interviews that these people might have done. What is it about food, do you think, that allows them to speak more openly, more candidly, more personally, maybe? Well, I think that food is about memory. I mean, food is about right now, of course, what you're eating, what you're cooking, the restaurants you're going to. 
but when you talk to people about their childhood yeah. and you don't keep it to where they lived or what their father's occupation was or um, where they went to school, but you say, what is, you know, what did you eat as a child? Did you go to the market with your mother? Did your grandmother cook for you? Did you ever, um, go, you know, go to a restaurant for special occasions or did you only go once a year? Or did you never go? Yeah. Um, and so I think if you only talk about food and the memories, then it's a very special conversation. What were some of the kind of more exciting or unexpected tangents and avenues you went on because you know these people quite well but did you discover new things about them during this, this what whole? I discovered many things but one of the things that it stays with me very much too is that nobody felt entitled although you could look at these people and see yeah. what a success they are now they're almost somehow surprised by their success and I would also say that it was measured in many ways but sometimes it was measured by actually going to a restaurant being able to order a good wine or to being exposed to a different yeah. kind of food or being able to travel that they couldn't do when they were growing up. And so I thought that was very moving that people were, were you know, grew up without people cooking for them, but that it was a kind of yeah. participatory experience. And then the other thing that really impressed me was that many people who came to this country from other places um, talked more about their grandmothers than their mothers. And they did that because I think if you come from another country, the mother might try to adapt. Uh, the child probably really wants to adapt. Mm. And the grandmother brings her culture with her. And it's very tough being an immigrant. It's very tough leaving your country. And um, so you, you bring the food with you, and that reminds you of home. Of course. And you were, of course, born and raised in New York and then came over here when you were a student. What do you remember of that first day landing in London? What did you eat on that first day? Ah, that's a good <laughs> question. I, um, I landed on the um, SS France, which stopped in Southampton. Oh, wow, I guess boat. Went on. Yeah, I came that's by really boat. romantic. Yeah, I came by <laughs> boat with a friend and um, he was going to Oxford. Wow. And there were quite a lot of students. This was sort of 1968. 69 and um, there were quite a lot of American students who were going to Europe to study because um, they were opposed to the Vietnam War and so they wanted to leave the United States and then I think the first day I went from straight from Southampton by train or bus or I can't remember to Muswell Hill where friends of my parents lived and they were taking me in and um, I remember being quite homesick that first week quite sort of surprised that I'd done this and um, and probably it rained and probably I was lonely and I wasn't sure what I was doing there <laughs> and um, I think that when I started meeting people we ate in ethnic restaurants so um, being in Camden Town um, we had Indian food we had uh, not so much Asian food but there were a lot of Greek tavernas yeah, there yeah. and uh, Cypriot restaurants. And I became quite close to this family that had a restaurant there. And I used to go there all the time and um, eat there with my friends or even help out and, you know, as, as, a, as a waitress or do that. And I think finding my feet food-wise in England was, was a bit of a journey. What was it like, London in the late 60s, early 70s, as a foodie place? My, my parents used to tell me that they could only get olive oil at, at the, the chemist, chemist. yeah. <laughs> um, I think that, as I said, I wasn't really, couldn't afford or wasn't exposed to 
to posh restaurants. Yeah. Um, so it was very much a student life. And I started cooking when I got my own apartment with other friends. Um, we just cooked at home and, you know, ate, and, and ate very simply. But I think London, I'm, I'm much less harsh on the British uh, food scene mm. um, in the 50s and 60s uh, because I think that Britain came out of a war and there was rationing and it was very tough. Yeah, of course. And so I feel, you know, if you couldn't get olive oil or Parmesan cheese or people didn't know how to cook um, until Elizabeth David came along, probably, uh, foreign food, then then I kind of, I feel a bit um, unjudgmental to that. But, you know, mm. I think there was an explosion, obviously, in the, you know, 70s when, when Anthony Wall Thompson and then... Um, Simon Hopkinson in the 80s and Sally Clark and I guess ourselves in 87 but I, I really don't like to judge what no. happened before us of course so what was it like how did it come about that you started running a restaurant well we're sitting here in Thames Wharf right now and my husband uh, Richard Rogers an architect who did the Pompidou Centre and so we lived in Paris for about six years yeah. and when he came back he really wanted to have um, an office that was a community rather than just an office in a building. And so um, rather than move to the city or find an office building in Soho, uh, the search was on for a place that could have a garden, that could have mm. light, that could have other people working there. And they found these abandoned um, warehouses that belonged to Duckham's Oil. And um, I suppose they really wanted to have some place to eat. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing on the Fulham Palace Road. This, you know, the gentrification of this area happened in the last sort of 25 years. And so there was a small space that he always had designated as a little cafe. And I was, you know, I was looking at applications for it with him on a ski holiday. And I said, you know, the only thing worse than not having um, a place to eat would be to have something as mediocre as these applications. <laughs> Maybe I'll do it. And I knew wow. that I couldn't do it by myself. And... I knew that one of my close friends, Rose Gray, had just come back from New York. And so um, I said, come and have a look. And within a couple of days, we were partners and we were doing a little cafe. Um, wow. We always had ambitions to be something more. But the um, reality was that the planning and the alcohol license said we could only be open at lunchtime mm. to the people who worked in these offices. Okay. So we were restricted, which in fact was actually a very fortunate thing because... We didn't know very much. Right. So a prolonged kind of soft opening. We were able to grow with the yeah. restaurant. Yeah, yeah, of course. So in the 90s, I suppose, River Cafe exploded and became a kind of cultural phenomenon. I remember when my parents got the cookbook in 1997 for Christmas, and it was kind of like this slice of cosmopolitan yeah. life landing in suburban Oxfordshire. Um, and I kind of became aware of it, and I think... It, in my memories, it's kind of bound up with an optimism of new labour and a kind of new class of yeah. cool Britannia and celebrities. What do you remember from that time? And was the 90s as sunny as I'm painting it there? Um, well, let's see. I think for us as a restaurant, we by 1994, we had opened the bar. We, we actually got space. So we could have a long stainless steel bar, which we've had since 1994, yeah. even though that has changed two or three times. Oh, okay, wow. Um, we've grown. In 1993, 94, we put in the bar, we put in a wood oven, and we put in a proper kitchen and a storage space. And then I think in um, 
2004, maybe, we put in the reception area. And then in 2008, we had a fire, and we changed everything, and we put in a private dining room. So the restaurant kind of grew as we grew. I think it was exciting um, to see how Britain reached out, in, you know, that people yeah. could fly from the United States for 200 pounds and we could go to Paris for 10 pounds <laughs> and we could go by, you know, it's all very unsustainable now, but, you know, Freddie Laker could get you to Rome for six pounds and, wow. you know, it's just suddenly everybody was traveling and when you travel, you eat different food and you buy different food and you come back. And so, you know, when we opened the River Cafe and somebody had a Papa Pomodoro, which was bread and tomatoes and basil, they said, what is this? And by, you know, the end of the 90s, people were understanding Italian food. When we um, did our first cookbook, the River Cafe cookbook, and Rose and I would do Q&As afterwards, it was always, well, you know, it's very well for you to do an anchovy sauce, but where are we going to get anchovy sauce? And those questions yeah. really stopped yeah. after, um, you know, everything became much more accessible when Terence Conrad opened a food store, when Carluccio opened a cafe, when um, Sally Clark did her, you know, shop, mm. and people were just Italian food, and the tourists started bringing food in from from Italy. This has been something happening over the last 20 years and probably more. And that's why my heart sinks when I think about what we're going through right now, which is closing borders and stopping visas and more forms to bring in goods. It's, um, uh, I find it very, very disappointing that yeah. we're in this situation right now. Was the end of the 90s a kind of a halcyon time? Was it, do you think, wider culture? Uh, I think it was, I think the New Labour was great when they came in and we were all very optimistic about a young prime minister and, you know, more women in the cabinet and a new beginning. Um, I think that then we, you know, we had other issues like <laughs> the Iraq War yeah. and with, um, you know, feeling of, um, inequality, but that's all other issues, you know, that we, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, no. but there was a feeling that we were part of Europe, we were part of the world, yeah. and uh, things were good. It, the River Cafe got a kind of label as a celebrity hotspot, and the lower celebrity was used a lot. Do you think that was kind of helpful, or was that sometimes... It never mattered barrier? to me, and no. to Rose, you know. The people that matters matter to us. Obviously, people are very often celebrities because they've achieved something, they've done something that is, you know, they're yeah. great actors, they're great writers, they're great entrepreneurs, they're great doctors or lawyers or human rights activists, but, um, and they comes under the category of celebrity. But I think the people that matter to us also are the other chefs that come in, the um, regulars, the people who, you know, I say that to every waiter that there might be people who come to this restaurant having saved up all months mm. or months to yeah. come here, you know. And so we have to be grateful for the people who come and eat here, whether they're famous, rich, or poor, or known or unknown. Yeah. You know, we're grateful for anyone who comes and wants to eat our food. Of course. All around us there are people bustling in preparation for lunch, and in the other dining room there's even more. What, what's it like managing a kind of a team of so many different people doing so many different stuff? How are you at the logistics, the field marshal, so to speak? Well, no, I'm not the field marshal. I think I'm part of a team. Yeah. 
and I think that I'm in part of this, that team. Obviously, you know, the buck stops here, you could say, but I do think that it's an, one of the reasons I like my job and my career is that it is so collaborative, you know. And so if you walk in there, someone is working on the wine and someone is working on the food and someone is working on the who's sitting where and somebody's cleaning the carpet and someone's chopping the parsley or washing a dish or cleaning a scallop or doing the accounts. You know, this is, this is a truly collaborative yeah. business. What type of person works here? What type of person do you I like to hire? I think the hire? people who work here are um, curious. You know, they want, they want to know more. Um, they're um, generous. They want to give their time and give people time. They are um, professional, so they come. You know, they. This is this is not just a lovey-dovey place mm. where everybody thrives. You have to perform, and you're judged on your performance. And um, I think that they are people who believe in the future. And they treat people well. They're kind. You know, they have good manners. They have um, values. Of course. On the note of manners, do you think you could tell a lot about someone about the way they eat and the way especially they eat in a, in a restaurant or the way they talk to people and treat staff and things like that? I have um, one of my interviews. I have several interviews that I had, or maybe almost every interview when I <laughs> ask the question, what do you do in a restaurant or how do you... What do you find out about somebody by going to a restaurant? Yeah. And so many people said they would not hire someone for a job without taking them to a restaurant first yeah. because you learn so much. Do they say thank you to the waiter when he puts down the food? Do they, um, do they get impatient if their food is late in coming? Do they share? Do they, you know, there's a, there's a way that is very revealing about a person when mm. the way they act in a restaurant. Absolutely. And on the other side of things, what's the kind of... The characteristics of a good host, what are the, the ingredients for that, do you think? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what makes a good host. I think probably um, everybody, I, I don't think of someone as a host. I think of joining a table or yeah. being with someone. You can have somebody who's a host who's in a really bad mood, but you love them so you don't care. You can have someone who's a host that you know, had a good day or a bad day or comes a bit late or comes early. I do like it when I see somebody who's there waiting for their guests to arrive. Yeah. Call me old-fashioned, but it is nice. But I'm very often late for my friends who arrive. You know, we're all in this together. You know, I think the less we can kind of hold up those, I think manners are the deep ones, not the superficial ones. Absolutely. Do you have any superstitions around restaurants and service? When we interviewed Jeremy King, he said he'd never open a restaurant, the first night of a restaurant would never be on a full moon because he thought it had an odd energy. Uh, Jeremy's one of my best friends, <laughs> but I'm afraid I'm a scientist. I don't have many uh, superstitions. No, okay, fine. Any rituals before service? What's, it, what's the atmosphere Sometimes like in there? Sometimes what I do is I, um, before service, I walk out to the outside of the restaurant yeah. and basically almost where they park the cars. Mm. And um, I walk in and I look at the reception desk and I say hello you know, to the receptionist and I walk down the bar and I walk into the restaurant and I walk down again the, um, the way that we work. You, the first thing you see is the bread and then you see the coffees and then you see the, you see the drinks and you see the coffee machine, the pastry section, the cold section, the grill. And I try and put myself in the um, shoes of somebody who might be walking into the restaurant 
for the first time after a bad day, yeah. somebody who really cares about the way, the cleanliness of the restaurant. And um, so I think, yeah, I try and do that, but usually I'm probably just trying to you know, talk to the, the waiters before mm. the menu meeting, and um, I don't have time to do that, but I do like to do that. A friend of mine, Ray Fine, says he does that in the theater, and so yeah. does Jake Gyllenhaal. They walk to the lobby, yeah, yeah, and they yeah. walk through an empty theater before they perform. So I suppose a restaurant is a bit of a performance. Absolutely. Is there kind of the pre-curtain coming up, frisson, is there nerves? Is there Definitely. energy? Definitely. There's an energy to... It is very much like the curtain going up. You yeah. know, you you work and you work, you make sure this, you know, everybody knows their lines, you make sure the scenery is painted, you make sure that the... Um, the seats are clean and the mm. carpet is clean and and that everything has been done and then the first customer walked in walks in and the curtain goes up yeah. and then the curtain goes down when the last customer is left but then it's not really over until you really have an empty restaurant mm. and then you think was that a good performance <laughs> that was the same performance i did last night with the same kind of feeling and there's different chefs maybe different menu but there was thing why was tonight better or worse than last yeah. night and I think actors feel the same way I'm sure they do what how does having the famous open kitchen do you think change the atmosphere of the place and even the way the chefs feel I know that if you ask me and you ask anyone else that it would be very very hard to work in a closed kitchen again ever mm. um, I never have but I think that the the kind of drama between us and the front of house, between us and each other, between um, the visibility of somebody that's walked in or somebody who's maybe not having a good time. Mm. Sometimes you see somebody giving a spoonful of something to try and you look at the expression on someone's face. Um, the way we all communicate with each other, knowing that you're no it's, we're noisy, okay. so we're quite silent. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing, an open kitchen. It really yeah. is uh, for us. I mean, I, I like going to restaurants where I don't have an open kitchen. I love sitting there and thinking I'm in a quiet place and I have no idea what's going on. But I also love going to a restaurant where I see the drama and the dynamic. Mm. It's really, it's good to have both. Of course. We spoke before about your new um, delivery boxes for Christmas. Oh, yeah. Do you want yeah. to tell us a bit about that? Well, they're not very new because we've been doing them yeah. for five years. But what is new is that every year they get better and better. And um, what, we, what we thought about four or five years ago when we started was the, um, the options for giving a present mm. at Christmas are mostly, they've, it's changed now and there's some really good ones, um, including ours, <laughs> but was a kind of the idea of the hamper, yeah. you know? And I'd, I will not disparage anybody who gives any present of a hamper because what a great thing to get. But um, I really, Notice that quite a lot of things in the camp hamper were things you might give away to yeah, yeah. somebody else or put on your shelf and not use them. And so we tried to think, well, what do people love about the River Cafe? They love the olive oil. They love the vinegars. They like the tomatoes, the pasta. Um, what can we give them that in a box that represents what we use every day, what we cook with, but also something special? So this yeah. year there's a book... Um, about a building of my husband's uh, that he did at Chateau Lacoste for Patty McKillen about it, and we made a book of the building and so that's enclosed in it and um, we have a tote bag that uh, there's a River Cafe tote bag we have 
beautiful colored napkins um, that we would that we use in our own homes. Yeah. We have um, a glass from Venice. So we try to make it very, it is very Italian. It's every single, uh, whether it's um, a bag of pasta, um, dried porcini, or uh, a bottle of olive oil is chosen by us. And then there's something special in, in the boxes, which is a cake that's made uh, from a recipe by Richard's mother, oh, wow. who came to London in the sort of late 30s and missed an Italian panforte. <laughs> and so she started making her own chocolate cake, and uh, sorry, her own Christmas cake. Beautiful. Uh, with mostly chocolate and nuts and very little flour. And so we're going to make that this year and put that in every box. And so I think the box is representative, really, of giving a present of something that you would want to give your friends yeah. because you know it and love it. And it, the box itself is very beautiful. It's designed by Michael Nash. People keep the boxes. And so we're very excited about the Christmas cool. boxes. Yeah, Beautiful. Do you have time for one quick one? Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, of course. I love how you end your podcast by asking uh, them about their favorite comfort food because yes. it's such a lovely and yes. revealing thing. I also love the way that Paul McCartney says the word quesadilla. Yeah, I know. It's we were so talking cool. about that just now. It's I amazing. Know. I could hear him yeah. say that word again and yeah. again. So yeah. Ruth, can I ask you what your comfort food is? Well, that's a good question. I think if I really want to think about something that would give me comfort would, would be, I'm afraid to say, pasta with tomato, because I know that I've had some moments of crisis in my life, and, um, and uh, where I just said, put on the tomato sauce, I need to smell the tomatoes cooking, and um, it's more about that whole process of feeling a tomato yeah. go from being a tomato in a jar to something that just is, you can have it. It doesn't even have to be a pasta with tomato. It can be tomato sauce on bread or the piece of mozzarella. Um, when I put that in my mouth, I feel like I'm in Italy and therefore I feel very comforted. Beautiful. Ruth, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.